0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Ross, uh, while well, you're on your way down, I just want to tell a story that kind of relates to you. Um, when we were having our dedication service for this uh, church, for this facility, um, the a and Church of Christ, from whom we bought this property, sent uh, three representatives to participate with us in that dedication uh, ceremony, service, whatever we called it, I'm, I don't remember for sure. But before the ceremony happened, uh, Dr. Don Sweeney, who's a prof out at A&M and, uh, belongs to a uh, and Church of Christ, uh, and whom I've known for a long time, pulled me aside and he said, now I want to tell you something. He said, we, you understand, we sold you all this building as is, right? And my concern is these walls have never been tested, Ross, with instrumental music. (laughs) So we're afraid, uh, and I noticed they sat in the back (laughs) during that service when our instruments began to play. Maybe they got a little nervous. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Well, if you were coming this morning to hear Joel Mathai, I'm sorry uh, that he's not here. But he's here, he's not here for a very good purpose, and that is he and his wife Nada have just had their first grandchild, and he's off playing grandpa this morning and probably having more fun even than if he were here with us. As Jerry and I have seven grandchildren, and I can tell you that if you're not a grandparent yet, it's something wonderful to look forward to. Well, Uh, Our topic this morning is Psalm 139, and I would invite you uh, to turn there with me now. Psalm 139. On the slide that's uh, behind me, I have the words, uh, We are significant people. I think as we read the psalm, one of the things that will burst upon our awareness and our consciousness is that in God's eyes, we are indeed significant. We're significant to Him, and because we're significant to Him, and because of what He has done and is doing in our lives, we ought to be significant to the world in which we live. That our lives ought to be a radiating source of God's presence and love, because of the significance that God has placed in us through his redeeming work in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not comfortable, is it, to say we are significant people because Christians are not supposed to brag on themselves. See, I don't know about you, but all the way from the smallest class that I was in as a child, I always remember being taught the joy principle, Jesus first, others second, and you third. Which means, you know, you talk about Jesus and praise Jesus and you uh, praise other people, but you never praise yourself because you're last in priority, right? And yet, we're going to come this morning to a place in the Psalm where God not only tells us in overwhelming ways all the things that He has done for us and is doing for us now, and our hearts can only respond to that with a great sense of gratitude and joy and thankfulness and being able to say we are people of significance because our significance comes from God. There are four sections in in this psalm, and that's the first section. Our significance comes from God knowing us, number one, being present with us, number two, having created us, number three, and continuing to guide us in our daily lives. Wow. So we really can say we are significant people not because of what we earn or merit or deserve, but because of what God has has done and is doing and will do in all of our lives. We are indeed significant people. Now, This poem, or this psalm, uh, has has served for the basis of poetry of many other poems, and probably one of the most familiar is Francis Thomas' very fine poem, The Hound of Heaven. Uh, This is not only a psalm, it's a piece of poetry which has been recognized throughout the literature world as being uh, significant. As a matter of fact... Many people say this psalm is one of the summits of Old Testament uh, poetry. And in it, we are going to see, as I've already said, that God provides the basis for our significance as his people. But beyond that, we're going to see that God not only made us to be significant, he created us to do something significant in our lives, to use what he's created in us in a kind of way that accomplishes God's will and God's purpose in this world and gives uh, announcement to the fact of what a great, great, great God we serve. And so finally, you've already seen this once, you're seeing it again, and I warn you, you're going to see it a third time. I am significant because God knows me is present with me, created me, and He guides me. Now, to lay out the flow of the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, and i got to tell you that I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with this psalm, because I love it. I mean, it is so gorgeous, and its truth is so profound. But there's so much here that there's no way we can cover it all today. I'm going to skim the top And hope that that will whet your appetite and that you'll go this week and use, perhaps, use this as your personal or family devotions to pursue it even more fully. So, verses 1 to 6 reveals God's omniscience. And it asks the question, how well does God know me? And that question is wonderfully answered. Secondly, God's omnipresence. Just how near is God to me? And when is he with me and when is he not? And that supports uh, the first, how well does God know me? He knows me, uh, secondly, because he's with me all of the time. He is omnipresent. Third, he knows me well because of his omnipotence. When did God get to know me? He got to know me, the psalmist says, even before I was formed in the womb. And then finally, in spite of all of God's marvelous and wonderful provisions for us, evil gets in the way and can sidetrack us off of the experience of the significance that God wants to display in our lives. And we'll come to see that more fully. Now, so let's go to verses 1 to 6, and I'll read those very quickly. Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And by the way, that's the topic sentence for the entire psalm. We could put that up as a heading. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is too high, I cannot attain to it. And so uh, he begins by talking about God's omniscience. God knows all about us. And there's not any dimension or portion of our personality, of our body, of our thoughts, of our actions, of our attitudes that God does not know. Now, the psalmist lays that out pretty clearly, but at the same time is a little bit troubled by it. Uh, You know when I sit and when I lie down, God knows all of our activities. By the way, the psalmist uses here what's called a mirrorism. A mirrorism is, if you talk about this pole and this pole of something, it includes everything in between. And so when he says, you know when I sit down and when I rise, it's everything that happens in between those two events. So God knows everything. You understand my thoughts in their origins. Even before a thought is completely formed in my mind, You're already connected with it. You already know what it is. Someone has said, when I'm walking, I'm encircled by you. When I'm lying down, I'm encircled by you. I'm encompassed by you in everything. Paul the Apostle said, for in him we live, we move, and we have our being. And the all-prevailing presence of God surrounding my life is God's omnipresence. God is always, always with us. But verse 4, perhaps is one of the key texts when we talk about the character of God and we want to prove His omniscience that He knows everything. And here the psalmist says, You know my thoughts before the word even comes out of my mouth. How could God possibly know what you're thinking except that He were standing outside you And reading your words and your body language and your expression. No, you see, God's not limited by those things like we are. I can only know what you're thinking as you give voice to your thoughts. And I I listen to your voice. I watch your body language, all of those kinds of things. All of those are clues to me about what you're thinking. But God's not limited to that. God's omniscience knows what's behind the words, behind the body language, behind the behavior. He knows the thought, as the Hebrew says, from its very origin. That's omniscience, my friends. There's not anything about you that God does not know. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And then finally in verse 6, David says, this is just overwhelming to me. Now, there could be two perspectives on that. And that is, uh, it's overwhelming because, God, I don't want you to know everything I'm thinking. You know, there are some things, God, I want to kind of ponder over in my mind before I let you know. Someone said to me in prayer, we were having a prayer together. And uh, after the prayer, we were just having conversation. And this person said to me, I didn't pray so-and-so because God might think that I'm thinking so-and-so. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the thought that God can't know what I'm thinking until I release that thought. No, my friends. God knows every moment, every minute, every minute process going on in your life, in your mind, your thought. David said, on the one hand, that's scary. But on the other hand, it kind of reveals an awareness on David's part. God, I have not realized to this point just how deeply you know me how thoroughly you understand me. And it's like we sang in just a moment ago, David is saying kind of like the words of the song that we sang, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. You know, the amazing part of of this for me The absolute amazing part is that God knows us that well and still loves us with a profound love. He knows all of those troubling thoughts that go through your mind. He knows all of the motivations and the attitudes that drive the good ones and the ones we would prefer God not even know, but he does know. And so that familiar saying really comes to the front, does it not now? The one who knows you best loves you the most. Wow. God loves you that much. Understands and loves completely, fully, and totally. Secondly, we move, well, I'm behind Um, I said I was technically challenged and now I'm demonstrating it, right? (laughs) Now we move to verses 7 to 12. And here we move from God's omniscience to God's omnipresence. His being with us all of the time. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. So, first of all, there are two possibilities here again. David is saying, Lord, if you know me that closely, uh, and you know my innermost thoughts, and one possibility is he's saying here, where can I go to get away from you? I need some private time. I need some alone time. I need some time, God, when you're you're not there. And so, where can I go from your spirit? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I made my bed in hell, you're there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the earth, you are there. And are there not times when we're really wanting to do business with God, and we're recognizing that in our view there's a closet that's shut off for God's opportunity in our lives? When I was a student here at A&M and began to feel God's call upon my life to do something, I wasn't sure what it was, and my greatest fear was that God would call me to be a missionary somewhere in the remotest parts of the world. Now I have to tell you, my heart's changed about that. But at that point in my life, one thing I did not want to do was go be a missionary somewhere. So I put that in a closet and I said, God, I'm willing to respond to your call except be a missionary. Where can I go, God, to keep that from you? How can I hide that from you? And don't we all do that? Don't we all, when we feel the Spirit of God moving in our lives in a compelling kind of way, we say, yeah, but Lord, you know, don't call me to do this or don't move me to do that or don't lead me down that pathway. God says, I am with you wherever you go and there are no compartments in your life that I'm not privy to. David says, you know, I need that. I need that privy time, that private time. Like Jonah. Remember, Jonah felt the call of God on his life. And he ran away from God as hard as he could. Went down and got on a ship and went out into the middle of the ocean. And he said, aha, God can't find me out here. But God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. God knew where Jonah was and there was never a moment that Jonah was out of God's view. And isn't it interesting that God so worked that situation, placed Jonah in the belly of the whale and put him right back on the shore where he started from to try to run away from God. There's never a time when God is not with us in everything we do. The second way to look at this is God is always with me. What a comfort that is. There's never a place in this world where I can go that God is not going to be there with me. I served for about 27 years in the military. And I can tell you that when you get into harm's way, and there are folks on the other side who are dedicated to doing harm to you, that this psalm means a tremendous amount. In all of the crises of life and all of those tight places that we get into in our lives to come to this psalm and to hear God say, I am never apart from you. There is never a time or a place in your life when I'm not right there beside you. I want to be there to comfort you, to strengthen you and to reassure you, you are not alone. That's what God's omnipresence uh, means to us. So those two possibilities, because we cannot outrun God, even if, as he said, the speed of the dawn, the speed of light, we cannot outrun God. And then we come to that comforting assurance. Now, next, we go to from God's omniscience to God's omnipresence, and now to God's omnipotence. And in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13, we read these words, and I would invite you to follow with me. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Not one of those days had happened, and yet all of them were preordained. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. And so God's omnipotence is the factor in our very creation. It is His power that brings us into being. The word for... now. When you're talking about inductive Bible study, remember every time you come to a paragraph where there's for or because or therefore, you have to ask the question, what's the for, therefore? And the for here relates back to the first two sections. How does God know me so well? Well, let me tell you, the psalmist says in these verses, he knows you so well. That he knew you before you were formed in the womb. Before you were ever knit together, we're going to see God knew you. That's how he knows you so well. And that's what these verses describe for us. Secondly, the psalmist says that he is amazed again at God's work. And he gives thanks to God because... He is fearfully and wonderfully made. Somehow we think, as I alluded to at the outset, that it's wrong for us to, to be thankful for who we are, for our being as human beings. And yet we have so much to be thankful to God for. For example, I noticed a, a couple of doctors in the audience this morning, and you'll have to check out the facts of this. I don't know. All I know is I read this in an article. And so I'll have to ask you to vouch for all of these figures. Do you know that, talking about fearfully and wonderfully made, in one square inch of your skin, any square inch you want to take from your body, in that square inch of skin, there are 20 blood vessels, 65 muscles, 78 nerves, 78 sensors for heat, 13 for cold, 160 for pressure. 650 sweat glands, 1,300 nerve endings, and 19,500,000 cells in one square inch of skin. Are we fearfully and wonderfully made or not? God's creative powers are way, way beyond our ability to understand. The complexity of our, of our bodies are way beyond anything that any of us, the brightest, smartest among us, could ever bring into being. And yet God has already done it, and he's done it in you. We are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. And God invites us, encourages us to value that and to give God the praise. Now, in verses 15 and 16, and let me read those to you again because I want to make some aside comments. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Um, That's uh, a phrase that was used in Hebrew to refer to the womb in the depths of the earth. And the origin of that is that while the maturation process of the child is going on in the mother's womb, it's hidden from sight. It's as if it were in the depths of the earth because nobody can see it. Now, we have modern technology today which allows us uh, to look into the womb at the baby being formed, but they certainly did not in that time, and that's what this language means. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. I don't know how you interpret that. And uh, I would only say to you that this causes me to believe that it is not God's choice or intention or purpose that we come to the place to make the decision to abort a child. Now, this is my impression My interpretation, and I own it solely as that. But I would invite you to think about this. If God knows a child before that child is conceived and brought together in the womb, and God knows that child as that child is being knit together into its mature form, preparing it for birth, God has a name for that child, and God has a purpose for that child, And God has already ordained the days of that child. Is it our prerogative? Is it our choice to terminate all of that and cease God's activity in the life of that child? You have to make your own decision about that. I would say to you that there are maybe some of you here this morning who've chosen that alternative to have a baby aborted. I want you to know, first of all, that there are always alternatives to that, uh, mention of which would cause Pam to stand on her chair and shout hallelujah because of her work with pregnant mothers to move them toward adoption as opposed to abortion. But if you've made that choice in your life, I want you to know that there is, in my view, the need for forget- God's forgiveness. And God offers that forgiveness. God offers reconciliation and restoration and an abortion as difficult and, in my view, as wrong as that decision is. It is not the unpardonable sin, and God stands ready to forgive. And I hope, if you've made that choice in your life, that you will allow God to move in close to you, to surround you with with his love. And, and respond to your request for forgiveness. But, you know, having said all of that, I just want you to know that in spite of how I interpret this, that there are obviously many, many people in this world who do not interpret it that way and feel that abortion is a rightful kind of alternative. Do you know that if you take all of the American casualties in all of the wars that America has been involved in since the Revolutionary War up to Iraq and Afghanistan, all of the soldiers, all of the people who have died in those wars, that if you add them all up over 200 years of history, there are only one-sixth of the babies who have been aborted in the United States since 1973 when abortion was made legal. Only one-sixth of the numbers of babies that have been aborted since 1973. Again, I own this only as my interpretation and my position. You have to make your own decision about that. But I believe God uh, intends for us to read this psalm While we're making that decision. And then in verses 17 and 18, God tells us we are never, ever out of His mind. He's always thinking about us. And David says God's thoughts toward us are like the sands. Have you ever been on the beach and uh, taken up a handful of sand uh, in your palm, perhaps? Uh, grab as much as you can hold in your palm and then just gradually release these fingers at the bottom and let that sand flow out. And, you know, if you play with it, you can write in the sand that way. And do all, as a kid, I just loved to do that and make all kinds of designs in the sand. But I got to thinking that in that handful of sand, there are almost countless numbers of grains of sand. And I release that, and I let that little handful of thousands upon thousands of grains of sand fall down on the beach. And I think, God's thoughts toward me are more than what I just dropped on the beach. And then I look up with my eyes, and I look at the whole beach, and God's thoughts toward me are more than all of that. More than the sand, God says. When you wake up in the morning, the flow of God's thoughts is already flowing to you, are already flowing to you. And those thoughts continue throughout your life. There's never a time when you're out of God's mind, out of God's thinking, out of God's care. What a marvelous, wonderful... God we serve. Quickly now, and I conclude, I'll scan over this. You'll be happy to hear this. I'll do some scanning from this point on. A response to evil. Now, why does David include this? I mean, this wonderful, beautiful psalm of omniscience, of omnipresence, of omnipotence. And then he turns and says, God, those bad guys out there, slay them. How does that fit? Well, I want to ask you to read that in the context of the whole rest of the song, Because I think what David is saying is, God, if you're that involved in my life, and you've invested that much in my life, and you want that much out of relationship between the two of us, then it's evil that gets in the way of that and thwarts it and turns it aside. I mean, God has that creative person purpose in every person's life who is born and yet evil comes in and diverts people and they never come to accept and know and receive God's redemptive purposes through Jesus Christ into their lives and because of that they never experience the fullness of what God has designed for them evil Satan gets in the way and diverts people away And that's why David said, Lord, take care of those evil people. And then he goes on to say, those enemies of you, because they were blaspheming God's name, are now my enemies. I want to do something about them because they're diverting all of your creative purpose in people's lives off into evil. But that's not enough. And this is where we come to the end. We come to the last two verses in the Psalm, and he says in verses 23 and 24, let me read those for you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. You see it's it's one thing to talk about what the evil folks are doing out there to thwart God's purpose but David says evil gets in the way if it's out there or if it's in me and therefore he says lord while you're taking care of the enemies out there search me and see if there's anything in my heart and my soul and my mind that's evil that keeps me from saying, Yes, God, when you come to me. I wonder if we, all of us, are ready to say that to God this morning. Lord, there may be something in me that's keeping me from experiencing the fullness of your omniscience, your omnipresence, and your omnipotence. And if there is God, Search it out. And don't just do a surface search, you know, but go into the computer program that says advanced search and search me deep, God, and see everything that's the root of my keeping myself back from you, of doing things, of thinking things that get in the way. Are you willing to do that this morning? In light of all that God has done and is doing in your life, are you willing to respond to that kind of love and care from God by saying, God, you know me better than I know myself. I'm not even aware of some of the things going on in me that keep me diverted off to the side in my relationship with you. God, you find it. You bring it to my attention. Enable me to confess it before you and yield it up to you for your overpowering love to take care of. Will you bow with me in prayer? Dear God, oh Lord, we are just absolutely overwhelmed by you. By what you are doing in our lives, what you have done, what you will do in the future. God, we don't understand with as many people as there are alive on the earth today, how you can say to each one of us, I am with you fully, intently, and with a purpose. And yet that's the promise you make. Oh, God, how much we miss when we don't yield ourselves fully and totally to you, when we don't open ourselves without reservation to your overpowering love. Enable us to pray that prayer today, not just read it in Scripture, but search me, try me. And if there's any evil way in me, anything, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you and thank you for coming.